And now, rather than having this negative momentum, I've got this positive momentum and I'm coming out of the shit. And that, that was what changed my life. That was the most powerful thing I think I've ever learned. Welcome to the Bar Ben Podcast, where we talk to the smartest coaches, athletes, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to pro strongman and multi-time world strongest man competitor, Travis Ortmeier. Travis rocketed to early stardom after turning pro and was on top circuits for years. But then a series of personal setbacks, including addiction, sent him tumbling toward rock bottom. I'm going to give an important warning here. This episode is raw in places and deals with issues surrounding addiction, recovery, drug use, and suicidal thoughts. If you or anyone you know is dealing with thoughts of suicide or self-harm, please dial the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. With that said, I want to personally thank Travis for sharing his difficult and emotional journey, including battling multiple personal demons. He's been at the top, at the bottom, and he's worked his way back up. Impressive doesn't even begin to cover it. Now let's get on with the show. Travis, thanks so much for joining us today. Joining me today. I say us, like I have a whole team of people, but no, it's just you and me. We're just talking. <laughs> There's all the voices in your head. We don't know. Yeah, it's just me, myself, and I. Uh, this is the first podcast I'm actually recording in the new year. Did you do anything to celebrate New Year's Eve? I always like asking people this. Oh, man, no. No, not this year. This my, uh, my my father was recovering from a heart attack, so we hung out here and uh, kept kind nice and simple, very chill. That's good. No one's no one's mad. No one's trying to catch an Uber home when the price spikes. No one's arguing yeah. over the check at the end of the night. That sounds really. I wish I could have traded places with you. To be honest, that's that's my, what I'm saying. It was kind of cool, man. I'm not gonna lie. I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. For those who don't know who you are. Give us the like spark notes version of Travis's athletic career, because since I can remember, basically you've been toward the upper echelons of the strongman game, but you didn't just like show up one day, obviously there's more of a progression there. And I'd love to hear about that story. Uh, okay. So you, you want the, the story first or just like some of the, the bullet points of where I've been. Let's do the story. Let's do this. Let's do it. For the story. All right. So I, uh, I started working out when I was 11 years old. I was just bullied relentlessly in school. I was kind of the fat kid, and I just moved from Southern California to South Georgia. So I just I didn't fit in. I was a fat kid. You know, black kids hated me because I was white. The white kids hated me because I was fat from California. It was, it was awful. So I would come home after school, and we had this little screened-in room on the side of our garage, and uh, I would just work out, man. I mowed lawns one summer to save up enough money to buy a weight bench, mm. and, uh, and that was it, man. It was it was fifty five dollars. It was a Vitamaster seventeen hundred from Walmart, <laughs> and then uh, my mom was proud of me, so she bought the weights. So I got those plastic, you know, cement filled weights. I know exactly what you're. You still see them in like old hotel gyms sometimes. <laughs> Exactly. They're, those are classics now, man. But they came with dumbbells. I did not have a barbell. So one afternoon, I don't know why I thought this was wise, but I went in the kitchen. And I took my mom's broom 
and I sawed the end off, and then I tried to play it off like I didn't know what happened. To it. She was she was probably a little less proud of you after that one, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got the wooden spoon for that one. <laughs> I did, you know, years of training in middle school, high school. I uh, did two bodybuilding shows in high school, and they were fundraisers for the football team, and I wasn't on the football team, so even though I was the only one in the lineup who knew what all the poses were, I didn't make it top three. And, and so I kind of realized the subjective nature of bodybuilding at that point. And uh, I was still thinking about doing it, but I went, I moved to Houston right after high school from the Atlanta area. And I started training with a guy. We started doing powerlifting. Now this is something I didn't know about. I never, all I knew about powerlifting was, the Ted Arcidi bench record of like 700 pounds it was because he was trying to sell me something in the back of a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he played that one. He leaned on that one. He squeezed it for about all it was worth for a while there, didn't he? I said, no, oh, man. You bench <laughs> 700. Why not? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> we did a powerlifting meet and we bombed out on squats. So it was, uh, it was a big bunch of wasted money and effort. And, you know, we had bought, squat suits and, and bench shirts but we could only he bought the bench shirt i bought the squat suit and then we shared them and, and this is kind of a funny disgusting part of the story but when we were checking in we were told we could not use boxers so we both had to go commando the next day while we were wearing the squat suit luckily though i got to go first and he had to go after with a sweaty suit <laughs> Um, you know what? Well, there are there are grosser stories in powerlifting. That that's well, relatively tame. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> For a 19 year old, it was kind of gross though. All right. So first powerlifting meet in the Houston area. You bomb out on squats, so you don't even get to the next part of the of the meet. Basically, yeah. We spent all that time and money, and it was a waste. And I was actually at that point kind of getting frustrated with lifting weights. I had been training now for like nine years solid. And I was going to school full-time. I was working full-time waiting tables. And I remember this little thought coming up in the back of my head saying, you know, maybe, maybe we should just focus on finishing school and, and work as much as you can, save up a bunch of money. And, you know, we'll just work out when you have time. And at that point, training was my life. I mean, I didn't wait tables on Saturday because that was squat day. Like that whole world revolved around my workouts and i remember that thought coming in and i knew i didn't like it but it was starting to gain a foothold and that's when my friend came up to me and he said i'm gonna do texas strongest man and i remember thinking like what do you mean like those guys on tv what are you crazy we'll never be that strong like, and this is what? this is the same guy that you you bombed out of the meat with that we did the powerlifting meet yeah. with yeah same guy same guy's name's marshall white he actually made it to World's Strongest Man in 2009. He was in group two. So we both got a long way. <laughs> awesome. Um, I was going to go with him and because you know, I was his training partner, I was just going to help him out at this meet, support him and, and be there. And anyway, we're driving up and he, once we get there, he's signing in and the promoter looks over at me. He's like, you know what? You're here. Why don't you sign up? I was like, you know what? What the hell? Those were those were the old days when you could just kind of roll up and they're like, yeah, we got some spots. Yeah, exactly. There was yeah, there was no cap. He just wanted my fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I was 227 pounds. I could have gone in the lightweight division, but I wanted to compete with my friend. He was like 275. So I signed up heavyweight. And as soon as I said, yes, I'll do it, my buddy looks up and he, he stares me dead in the eyes and goes, man, I'm glad you signed up because now, at least now I know I won't take last. <laughs> That's a great friend. What a friend. What a buddy. I, I don't know what it was, man. Something turned in here and this whole new gear of competitiveness I didn't know existed just came out with a fury. Uh, I barely slept. And then uh, we competed that next day. It was in Denison, Texas, which is right on the Oklahoma border. It was August 2nd, 2002. It was hot sure it was as hell. I was going to uh, say, I'm sure it was just 105% humidity kind of feeling oh, yeah. like. Yeah, and it was 110 degrees. It was on blacktop in a bank parking lot. Oh, my God. It was awful. But it was the absolute most fun I'd ever had doing anything in my entire life. I still get goosebumps thinking about that day, man. It That that day changed me. Mm. I, went, I remember for the next six months after that, all I could think about was Strongman. I dreamt of Strongman every single night that next six months I'd wake up with thinking the farmers were in my hands. I'd wake up smelling the tacky. I was obsessed. <laughs> it, that, it, I mean, it changed something in me, man. I had this clear path where I was going in life. I was going for biotechnology. I was going to start working in the medical field, blah, blah, blah. And then strong man came in and I took this sharp turn the other direction stopped working i quit my job sh shortly after that luckily i had saved a little bit of money for that kept me going for a few years and the school started to fall apart pretty quickly i remember i was going to take a semester off and that semester off was 21 years ago so <laughs> that's, a, that's a long that's a long gap you know that's a little, that's a little bit of a, a break. break man <laughs> but you know what i don't regret it at all man i i followed my heart and I put everything I had into Strongman. It just, it felt so right for me. That was 2002. It was, it was a week before my 21st birthday. And by 2004, I was winning every competition I did in the amateur ranks. And I won amateur nationals. So I got my pro card. And then by 2005, I was already at the world championship. So I was, uh, I was rookie of the year with IFSA 2005. <laughs> and then if you don't know what IFSA is, IFSA and World Strongest Man, they split in 2004. And there was three years where they were separate. I did IFSA those three years. It was definitely the harder federation. I was going against guys like Zydrunas Savitskis, Vasil Virastuk, Misha Kuklaev, real heavy hitters. It, they were monsters. But it, it toughened me up. You know, because when everything came back together, I was at World Strongest Man 2008, and I took fifth in the finals. And I took fifth the following two years in the finals. I was three times fifth at World Strongest Man. I've competed there a total of five times with three more world championships with IFSA. And then I went to the Arnold five times. I was third twice and fourth once. But I had a broken ankle at that point, so kind of proud of that fourth place finish it's about the only fourth place finish i'm proud of sometimes <laughs> it's when you finish right off the podium right not that i have a ton of experience making strongman podiums just to clarify but 
it's sometimes those where you just like you beat your own expectations and no one else really knows how much pain you're in or the internal factors that you're fighting is that self-victory those really stick with you yeah yeah absolutely and the second place is kind of the opposite because you're like you were good enough but you just didn't quite pull it off <laughs> I don't. This this might be apocryphal, but someone said they did a study of you know Olymp- of Olympic athletes. I'm not sure how true this is, like a survey, and the ha- it goes the happiness level goes gold, bronze, silver, because gold you're obviously happy you won, bronze you're happy just to be on the podium, silver you're like, I was so close. Yeah, that's exactly it, man. <laughs> Third or second place is the first loser. <laughs> but in those years. Uh, you know, when, once 2005 happened, I started taking off all over the world and got to compete with the best of the best. I got to have fun. I got every trip paid for looking back on my career, you know, and, and there's obviously a little bit more after that period, but, uh, I feel fortunate that I've gotten to do what I've gotten to do because I've been to 34 countries on someone else's dime, six continents where I've just gotten to see so much the world has to offer. And then when you're with a traveling group of gigantic men, people are nice to, you know, so everywhere we go, we get treated really, really nice. (laughs) That's, that's a fantastic story. And I think that you also highlight there's a, there's a level of camaraderie because at the top echelon, there aren't a thousand people who are competing in all these competitions, right? There are, there are really only a couple handfuls of career guys. Yeah, who are doing this, and I'm, I'm, and, and I got to ask, of those, who is your favorite to compete against? Oof, man. So, in my previous life, you know, up until 2012, I enjoyed competing with Misha Kuklaev and Derek Poundstone. They always mm-hmm. seem to bring out the best in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some really good competitions against them. They were both very tough competitors. I know 2009, I was competing with Poundstone at American Pro Nationals, America's Strongest Man. And it was like, it was eight events over two days. And by event number six, I think we were so far in the lead, we couldn't be touched by the rest of the pack. But we just kept hammering the shit out of each other (laughs) because neither one wanted to concede any defeat to the others. (laughs) Yeah, man. Um, now, so coming back, um, it's all new faces, man. There's there's nobody left that I used to compete with, or maybe one or Mark Felix is still around. He, he's he's timeless. That man is there's there's Impressive. yeah there's aging and then there's Mark Felix. Let's be real here. I, <laughs> I do want to ask, you know, you say coming back, you say your previous life. There's kind of this like two phase situation you've alluded to. Talk about why that is a little bit, if you don't mind. I loved traveling and competing. I absolutely loved it. I loved training. I was a complete savage when it came to both. And living that fast-paced life, training the way that I did, I was starting to burn the candle at both ends. And I, I just crashed at one point. I just I, I kind of broke apart at the seams. You know, for, for a couple of years, I was on painkillers. And it, it kind of started out with the doctor saying, well, you know, you, you need these because you, you're in pain and you could get better sleep and you could train harder and blah, blah, blah. 
And I knew in the back of my mind that that was not the case. I, I knew maybe, yes, I could get better sleep, but I knew it was not a good idea. In fact, it was like the, I think the second or third time in my life, this little guy back here kind of threw up a red flag and said, no, this is a bad idea. And I ignored it. And every time I've ignored that voice, <laughs> it has been disastrous for me because I ended up taking the painkillers and got addicted very quickly. I had no idea how that was going to be. And that was kind of a monster, man. I hated that. I hated that because, you know, when you're addicted to painkillers, when, when you are stuck on them, they don't just numb the physical pain. They numb you mentally and emotionally. And so my relationship started to, to suffer. And I had married a woman from England and uh, we, we had a child in 2009, uh, named after my friend Misha Kuklaev, you know, we just started to kind of grow apart. And you know, basically anything that could go wrong for me started to go wrong in 2012. We had, we had separated. The actual worst day of my life was November 25th, 2012. Um, my, my then wife and I had decided we were going to move to England where she was from. And she was getting on a plane and taking my son to go to England and get set up over there. And I was going to sell the house. And, and I just knew that was another time that little guy back here was screaming at me. And uh, I didn't listen. I just ignored. I said, no, this is for the best. It's what needs to be done. And I remember dropping them off at the airport. And with a, my son with his little, his little, uh, I think it was like a mater from cars, baseball hat, and his little cars backpack. And he was so excited because he was going on an adventure and I'm sitting here hugging him. And I know that it's going to be a long time before I get to hug him again. And everything was screaming at me, man. I watched them walk through the doors at the airport and that shattered my heart, shattered. It was the most painful thing I've ever felt by far. And I competed on a broken ankle. I mean, I've been through some shit, but they, they pale in comparison to that. There's nothing like it. In fact, it was so bad that I had to stop a couple of times on the way home. And I, I didn't know how to get out of this pain. I was, I was hurting so much. Yeah. I went home and I couldn't find a way out of it. So I, I broke down and, and called an old friend who I'd known had gotten into some other shit, some harder shit. And uh, she ended up giving me some crystal meth. And that was like pouring gas on the fire, man. I was going to have a week. I said, Travis, you got a week to do whatever you need to do. And then we need to straighten up and get your shit together and get over there. That week turned into four years. <laughs> so not the way you want to go. Ducking out is not the answer. Uh, one of the reasons that that happened was after a few days, I realized I didn't need to take the painkillers anymore when I was on the meth. And so I thought, well, hey, this is great. I can finally get off of these fucking things because I had tried several times and that was miserable. That was awful. So here I found a way to get off and I'm like, I can quit this. This is no big deal, except it's a worse deal. It's a far, far worse deal. And uh, I had that monkey on my back for the next few years. And it just, you know, if, if, if my life was 
going down slowly. Once the meth came in, it was just like falling off a cliff. Mm. It went from a steady decline to a vertical drop. And a perfect storm of everything that could go wrong did. My friends started to, to ignore me. My family kind of stopped talking to me. Uh, I was trying everything I could to talk to my son every day. And, and that was, you know, my ex-wife was being very difficult with that. I lost my passion. I had already lost my passion for training. And that's kind of where the last year leading up to this mess had gone. Mm. I was, I was kind of a mess because I wasn't training. I was just miserable all the time. Um, the reason I stopped training was because I was hurting so much. I had broken my ankle in 2010 at the finals of world's strongest man. I finished, um, I did it like halfway through and I finished, took fifth place, but then I started training for the Arnold just a couple months or like eight weeks later, seven weeks later. And it was horrible. That's the one that I ended up taking fourth place at was the 2011 Arnold classic, but it was with a, an ankle that was still busted and it just pissed me off. And I, I wanted to take some time off, but my wife kept telling me I need to compete because we need the money. And so I kept competing and, and the more I did it, the more I hated it. And by the, by 2012, I was done. I, was, I can't stand this shit anymore. I don't want to do it. I don't even want to walk into a gym. I want nothing to do with this. And so that was kind of that, that real beginning of the downward spiral. And then fast forward from 20 beginning of 2012 to November of 2012 and my wife leaving. And that's when things just fell uncontrollably. I, I was losing my career. I was losing my, my personal training job that I had as well. Then I started to lose. I lost my house. You know, I, I played the game and I, I did a bankruptcy and I could keep it a little bit longer. I played this game several times. So I ended up staying in there for another two hours, two years without paying a thing. <laughs> but, you know, the whole time it's stressful. You're yeah. freaking out because you're like, I'm going to lose my house at any minute. So I'm living with that stress bearing down on me. I'm living with not getting to talk to my son hardly ever. I'm living with nobody talking to me, my family kind of leaving me. And, and, you know, this loneliness and this pain that you just keep trying to hide from. At one point, it got so bad that I was finished, man. I was, I was ready to be done. And I was sitting in my bathroom and I, I tried to call my son and I got the voicemail again. And that just, every time that that voice would come up, it was like a, another knife to the heart, you know, trying to talk to my boy. And, uh, I was ready to fucking end it, man. I was, I was, sitting there with a gun in my mouth and, and the only thing that stopped me initially was I started to think about the aftermath and I thought, well, who, that poor bastard has got to clean my brains off the ceiling. <laughs> so I don't want to do that to somebody. So I thought about trying to find a different way as a little cleaner. <laughs> that's, that's what I kind of like nervous laugh you know, a broken man laugh. Like, why, why am I even thinking about this at this time? And I thought, well, it's because I'm probably truly not ready to give up. Mm -hmm. And I said, 
you know, I, I kind of broke down a little bit. And I was like, I've got to find a way out of this. And I remember asking myself in that moment, like, when is this going to stop? When is this going to be over? And that little voice back here popped up again and said, you're going to start over. <clears throat> and, uh, and I knew what that meant. I knew that everything that I had gained throughout my life as strongman was going to have to be torn down and rebuilt. I'd already done a fair amount of tearing down at that point. I was probably 255, 260 pounds. But as I thought about that, and then I thought you know, about my life that got me there, and I thought, what is going on? How did I end up in this spot? How did I get here? And I noticed a trend. I noticed that the more negative thoughts that I had, the more negative things seemed to happen to me. You know, I, I was going through it for years. I, I would come home and I'd, I had this little rhyme in my head. I hate my life. I hate my wife. I hate myself. I hate everyone else. And it was just so asinine. That's just depression, misery that that's hijacked your way of thinking. I noticed the more that I thought about all the negative things and all the things that I lost, the more things that I'd lose. So I said, wait a minute. Let's turn that around. Maybe if, if that's true going this direction, maybe if I start thinking about something good, I can start going the other direction. Yeah, It yeah. just seemed the natural kind of progression for me. And uh, I said, okay, let's find one thing, one positive thing. And I'm still sitting there. I put the gun down and I'm looking around. My bathroom's a mess. My house is, it's a tweaker house. If you've ever been to one, they're, they're nasty. They're cluttered and dirty. I had shit everywhere that I would just stockpiling stuff. <laughs> uh, it's, it's embarrassing to even say, but it was such a mess. And uh, I'm looking around and all I see is this trash or I see memories of my son. And I started spiraling down. I started thinking about everything that I'd lost. Again, I went, that's another trigger right there. Every time I see something, I go through this whole list of things that I've lost. I lost my house. I lost my wife. I lost my son. lost my family. Every time I'm sad, I go through this checklist. So let's make a checklist of good things. Now find that one freaking good thing. And I looked around. I couldn't find anything. So I kind of gave up. I put my head in my hands. And I looked down. And I see my feet. My feet, they were a little torn up because I had been injecting meth for couple of years at this point. And I don't know if it settles down in there, but you get this dried out cracked skin. And I looked at my feet and I said, you know what? They're a mess, but they still work. And my God, I don't actually have to sit here and do this right now. I can get up and I can walk out of here. And I got this feeling, this surge of joy that came up in the back of my throat. It was the first time in years I had had that feeling. It felt amazing. And I kind of, I just, I sat with it for a while and I thought about my feet. I thought about how I can get the fuck up and leave. I don't have to be here. And so I went to bed. I got up the next day and I said, I want that feeling again. And so I started looking around for something else. Let's find something positive. And I said, okay, Travis, you're looking, you're trying too hard. You're looking for something too big. Go with something simple. And I said, I got my hands. I got my feet and I got my hands. These hands are still strong. I can still go anywhere. I can still do anything. 
And I got that surge of joy again. It's like, that is the key right there. The third day, I found a third thing. The fourth day, I found a fourth thing. The fifth day, I didn't find anything new. So I went back through my previous four, and that was where it really changed. Now I've got my list. Instead of that negative list, I had this positive list. Every time I started thinking of something negative, I started thinking positive. Go through your list. I got my hands. I got my feet. I got my this. I got my that. That created the fifth thing. And every day I tried to expand upon that. But if I couldn't, if I was having a bad day, I would go through my list. And I came up with a little trick. I would keep a little, like, a rock or, like, a, a nut, something in my pocket. So that every time I reached in my pocket, that was my gratitude rock. Mm. I would take it out and I would go through my list. So if I've got, you know, next to my phone or my keys, if I reach in there, I pull that out. Now I've got my gratitude list. And now rather than having this negative momentum, I've got this positive momentum and I'm coming out of the shit. And that, that was what changed my life. That was the most powerful thing I think I've ever learned. And I knew it was shaking things up because the people that were around me at that time, you know, misery loves company. Well, they weren't ready to get out of their shit. They weren't yeah. ready to get out of their hell. And here I was making a move and it was making them uncomfortable. So I remember this one girl, this woman said, what do you have to be so grateful for? Like, well, that's another one right there. Cause I'm making waves. <laughs> Travis, if you don't mind, first off, Thank you for sharing that. There's, I think we have a lot of people on this podcast who are elite athletes, world champions, record holders, Olympians, you name it. And we see the positive and we often accentuate the positive of those journeys. But athletes, elite athletes, just like anyone else, can have those dips, they can have those valleys, they can have those very dark times. In fact, sometimes... I would argue people who achieve at those highest levels might be more susceptible to some of those deep pits sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because they because people they those those people tend to have an intensity about them and that intensity manifests in the successes and the triumphs in life and it can sure as hell manifest in the bad yep. ways. Yeah, it's it's that that addictive personality or that obsessive personality that can be used for greatness or absolute destruction. I was really good at being a strong man. I was really good at destroying my life. <laughs> and I think that, you know, what I'm, what I am really imp impressed about and really interested in your story. And we're going to have to, I mean, unfortunately this is, I wish this podcast were longer. We're going to have to have you on again, if you're down for it to talk more, but I do want to hear a little bit about your re-entry into the strongman space and rediscovering that passion because i know it's been in the grand scheme of your career a relatively recent thing but you're back on the radar your name's you're, you're back in the standings so to speak and i want to hear just a little bit about what it's been like for you coming back to that community and reigniting that spark for for competition and kind of refining that greatness yeah we it, uh you know it all started with that moment of finding something good but i've been on a, a, a upward trending uh, slope whatever you want to call it i mentioned i was 227 pounds at my first competition and then i mentioned how i was going to have to start over i walked into the gym in 2016 completely 
sober, clean. I had moved out to Reno. I went into the gym. The first day I weighed myself, I was 227 pounds to the dot, to the pound. <laughs> and then it was an upward or uphill battle. I had to, uh, you know, I trained. When you're rebuilding a physique after taking time off, you have this thing called muscle memory. I'm sure everyone's aware of that. You can gain the strength that you had very quickly. Um, that worked for me up until about 70, 75% because I had destroyed so much tissue doing what I had done. So after that, it was a real fight to get everything. And so I trained for two years, then did my first strongman contest. I went from America's Strongest Man 2012 to America's Strongest Man 2017 was my next competition, five-year gap. And it was heavy. And I didn't, you know, it was, it was weird to go back. It was weird, especially with Champions League. Because I had spent so much time with all the people in Champions League. They knew all about me. They knew all the rooms. Everybody knew the rumors. <laughs> and so, but true to strongman form, it's the greatest bunch of people on earth. You know, everyone's been welcoming. Everyone has been supportive. Everyone has been. You know, even when there's, I wouldn't say bickering, but like if there's guys who don't get along or guys who do get along, I'm, I'm outside of that. I'm outside of all of that. It's like I, I've risen to this point where I've got this level of respect just because I've done what I've done. And I've been, you know, I'm, I'm friendly to everybody and I try to pick everybody up along the way. I'd like... I genuinely want to see my competitors do their absolute best. And that's kind of true as a, as a whole in strong, man. Most guys are that way. And it's really because we don't want to beat you when you have some excuse. I want to beat you. It's your best. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the camaraderie of strong, man. Yeah. So when I came back, it was, you know, welcoming, I got welcomed right back into the brotherhood. And uh, it was really cool. And especially world's strongest man. Now, I had kind of had a falling out with World's Strongest Man in 2011. 2011. I had an issue, falling out. And then in 2021, I got invited back. And it was a totally different experience. It was, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. It was the, the massive welcome back, the, you know, just the support from all the crew the way they handled everything. They did such an amazing job. And uh, I actually set a record for uh, the longest gap between World's Strongest Man appearances. So 10 years. <laughs> and you better believe I'm going to set the record for the longest gap between a finals appearances. <laughs> <laughs> Travis, I got to, un unfortunately we're out of time. So I have to end on that note because I want that as a little bit of a teaser. Right, because I want to back on because your story is so interesting, and again, I'm so thankful that you shared not only the triumphs because it's easy to get on this podcast with any number of people who have done amazing things. You talk about oh, and I won this, and I won this, and I won this, but every, everyone has their challenges, and sometimes, yeah. sometimes the people who have the most success. They can go to the deepest, darkest places too, and so getting you on, I'm just so incredibly thankful that we're kicking off the new year and new recordings 
with something that's a little different than what we normally do. It's not all just the sunshine and rainbows sort of stuff, right? Sometimes it's clawing back from that through the mud, through the gravel. On out of the darkness. Yep. And man, there's 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 strength to push press a 400 pound log overhead, but there's also strength to drag yourself out of a tweaker's house and out yeah. of that dark hole, right? Yeah. And man, that that takes a whole different level of fortitude, right? That probably makes that probably makes the weight seem a little less intimidating some days. You know, it it does it does because I know uh, one of the things that I learned is that I'm hard to kill. And when you know that you're hard to kill, it's kind of liberating. <laughs> I know that I'm, I'm a tough son of a bitch any way you slice it. So, yeah, I think uh, it, it's taught me a lot. The whole lesson, and, and life is a lesson, it's a series of lessons. But it's, it's given me, you know, different sides of the same coin. I've seen different mm-hmm. perspectives. I've been at the top. I've been at the bottom. And I've been everywhere in between twice, which is something I carry into my coaching business. Yeah. Because I've got a lot of different athletes. I got a lot of different mindsets. I got, you know, the guys who are on top of their shit, and I got the guys who are trying to figure it out. And uh, I I feel like I can relate to everyone at some level. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't always know what somebody's going, you don't know how they feel. You can't know how they feel, but you can understand what they're going through and then give them space to kind of work it out on their own and some guidance to work it out on their own. So I, that's one of the things that I like the most about coaching, you know, programming is great. Diet is great, but getting that, that extra little 10% out of somebody that they didn't believe that they could do that. I love that. I love that. Travis, where is the best place for people to follow along with not only your competing, your competition career, your competing career, your competition career? Jeez, I'm an editor. Come on. Where's the best (laughs) place for people to follow along with that and also the work you're doing coaching? The best place to find me is Travis underscore Ortmeyer on Instagram. I think it's underscore Travis Ortmeyer. There's only (laughs) one of them. You can can find it. Their search function works. You can can find it. People can find it. I check my DMs. I try to get it, it. you know, I reply to everyone I can, and that's a great place to inquire about coaching. I've also got a website, travisfortmeyer.com or texasstoneman.com, my old nickname. That's that's a great name. I'm glad you kept that URL, too. That's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> I worked hard for that one. I worked real hard for that one. Travis. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I feel like we've only had part of your story, so I'd love to have you on in the future. I'll reach back out to, to tell to tell the rest because there's so much going on. I super appreciate you sharing, um, and uh, and happy new year, my friend. Well, happy new year, man. Thanks for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs>